Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. It's happening, folks. International relations and election shock therapy. Let's do this. (laughs) So happy. I'm so happy. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Moore, and this is Election Shock Therapy. Thanks for joining us. Here to hear my rambling musings about international relations are... Andy Bramson. And Matt Kukum. Mitch Crum heard we were talking about international relations and pulled the ripcord. He is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Undisclosed location. Exactly. So while while the Senate... Uh, Joe Manchin, looking at you, uh, continues to dither on the majority of Joe Biden's domestic policy agenda. My colleagues here on this podcast have cleared some space for me to talk about a couple things of interest that have been happening in the international realm over the last few days and weeks. One of those things is just percolating right now. I got a chance to... uh, in my upper-level class, start the class by saying, guess where a coup happened? And several of them looked hopeful, like my answer might be, this class, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) we don't have to take the midterm. Someone else is in charge now. (laughs) More Monte Carlo quizzes. If you're, exactly. If you're following along, you know that there has been a military coup d'etat, at least it appears as such, in Sudan, and that's a big deal both for the United States and for China, but also, of course, for the Sudanese people to figure out who's governing them and how that's going to function. We could spend some time talking about that, but I just wanted to note that, to note that that might be a future developing issue. We may come back to what's happening in Sudan. But we want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the Taiwanese Straits right now and what's happening in and around the Taiwanese Straits. You may have heard in the news over the course of the last few weeks about something very impressive and or scary sounding guys. Have you heard about the hypersonic missile? Yes. Although the details are rather sketchy um, on said hypersonic missile. Maybe you could explain to us what, um, what this is about. I'll try. So (laughs) here comes, uh, here comes the popular mechanics version of hypersonic missiles for (laughs) Decades and decades now, uh, all the major nuclear powers, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, France, Israel, India, Pakistan, have all possessed long-range ballistic missile technology, which means they could put a warhead, nuclear or otherwise, on a long uh, flight apparatus and deliver that most places in the globe. What's been notable in the last decade is that North Korea is getting closer to having three-stage ballistic missile technology, which would allow them to drop uh, a nuclear warhead somewhere in the United States. Right now what they have is two-stage, which at best on the right kind of weather conditions could maybe get a nuke to Seattle. So... Ballistic missile technology is important, but it's not new. Mm-hmm. As Because it's not new, countries like the United States have been toying now for a couple of decades with the prospect of building missile defense systems. 
Now, during the Cold War, and here's why IR nerd gets to really come out. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union explicitly banned for themselves ballistic missile defense systems. Now, we might ask yourself, why would I ban a defensive system? Who cares if I build a good wall? Who cares if I build a good defense? Well, my analogy is think about it like a bulletproof vest. In a world where everybody has a handgun, the person who has the bulletproof vest can really afford to be aggressive. Yep. The same thing is true with ballistic missile defense systems. If you have a really good defensive system, you can bomb other people with impunity without worrying about what happens if they shoot back. The Soviets and the Americans knew that, and as an act of trust building, they banned those kinds of systems. Flash forward past the end of the Cold War to uh, 2001, but before the 9-11 attacks. The Bush administration was interested in developing a missile defense system. They weren't interested in deterring the Russians, who still had ten, uh, uh, 9,000 at that point nuclear warheads. You couldn't define, uh, build a system that could stop that many incoming bombs. But what they did want to build was maybe a system that could defend against one or two Korean warheads. Right. So the United States withdrew unilaterally from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. And the Russians never forgave us. Specifically, Vladimir Putin never forgave us. Right. But since then, we've been working on different kinds of missile defense systems. And those systems are pretty good sometimes in tests <laughs> at stopping ballistic missiles. They've never had to work in, 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 in reality. And right. it's not clear they would work great in reality. We certainly know that if a country sh lobbed uh, 150 uh, different warheads at us, we wouldn't stop them. Right. Um, but Russia and China have been looking for ways to obviate that or uh, those systems. And this makes a lot of good strategic sense, financially speaking. It's a lot easier to build a missile that can get to your uh, opponent's territory than it is to build a system that can stop all kinds of missiles, right? right. Uh, this is where hypersonic missiles come in. That's exactly right. And so hypersonic is one of the technologies that both the United States and Russia and China are all independently working to develop uh, as a way to get around some of these, hyper, some of these uh, missile defense systems. So the way the Chinese uh, have done this, and this is the system they tested back in August, which has now come to light, is they launched a, a, a missile essentially into space. So using a three-stage rocket system, they put um, a delivery system. It did not have a nuclear weapon on it, but it could in the future, and that's the point of this. And basically, this missile hung out in space. It, it orbited the Earth at least once, maybe multiple times, and then it re-entered the atmosphere and glided down to Earth. Now, I only glide is kind of a misnomer here. This thing's moving really fast. Um, Limited. Oops. What's that? Limited. <laughs> rocketed. Um, um, but it's not moving as fast as a ballistic missile. So these things are not, these things are fast, but not as fast as a normal missile system, but because they're coming at a very different angle than how ballistic missiles usually approach an incoming target, our current missile defense systems have really no defense against this. Now it's not all rosy for the Chinese. This test ended up landing 20 miles away from its intended target. So in terms of accuracy, it leaves much to be desired. But they still are doing a great deal better than the United States. The two times the United States has done a real-world test of its hypersonic missile system, um, it failed to actually reach orbit. So yeah. we're, we're behind on this. And 
before you say, well, we have another a new Cold War missile gap, we really don't. The United States, nor Russia, nor really China, need these kinds of systems. But there is sort of this feeling that having another um, arrow in your quiver is never a bad thing. Your military contractors are more than happy to design this thing for you. And there's a little bit of national pride going on here, too. The fear is, of course, that this could generate a new kind of, of arms race. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think I'm, yeah, that, no, that's a really good summary. I think it might be worth sort of explaining a little bit a little bit more about sort of why hypersonic missile technology is um, has a potential to sort of change the strategic situation. Um, mm-hmm. I'll defer to you, Chris, on some of this. But interesting thing about hypersonic missiles is, I mean, as you point out, you know, they don't go as fast as ICBMs, right? These intercontinental ballistic missiles that have been around for a long time, which go just incredibly fast. Hypersonic missiles. Um, they go around Mach five or a little bit yep. over, right? So five Whereas times. Whereas a ballistic speed missile goes more about Mach eight. Yeah, exactly. Um, So basically trying to shoot down any of these objects is like, you know, trying to use, um, you're basically using a missile to shoot down another missile, right? A bullet to basically destroy another bullet. And turns Mm -hmm. out that's really hard. ICBMs um, basically have pretty defined trajectories, which allows us to know. And generally, a lot of times they come um, because of the curvature of the Earth. They're going to come like over the one of the poles, probably the North yes. Pole. Mm-hmm. That allows us to predict um, pretty easily, you know, and then shoot down, um, you know, some of these rogue rogue um, ICBM um, reentry vehicles, right? But the thing about different sorts of hypersonic technologies is that they can come, they can fly lower potentially. They can come in at different trajectories that aren't necessarily predictable and potentially depending on the delivery vehicle, the delivery vehicle itself could be maneuverable, which is not true of ICBMs. So they basically are extremely difficult to, to target. And so you wouldn't have to have many of these things operational, right? Um, Especially if one's in orbit, um, you know, they, they you can put uh, a nuclear bomb on a target in very short order if you have one of these things circling above the globe. And so what, you know, China could do is it could put one of these things in orbit, you know, around the time that it was engaged in some sort of conventional conflict. Um, and that would basically make it more difficult for the United States, let's say, to use its its nuclear arsenal um, should that conventional war go, you know, potentially go nuclear or whatever. It sort of complicates the equation for the United States right. is, is sort of my understanding of this. So, so in this, and my understanding too, Chris, is that this is part of a larger, longer trend in which China has been increasing its nuclear capabilities, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And this is, like you said, just another, um, another tool that it has or it's another capacity it's trying to build. Mm -hmm. Yes. It it is different in one way that I want to point out. And I think this is, I think this is understandable and I'll explain why, but China's military developments over the course of the last decade and a half, maybe a little bit longer, certainly during America's war on terror has been one that's been referred to as a two AD or anti-access area denial. Base, and this revolves ar- dramatically around Chinese naval power. And so China's mostly invested in its, in its navy, with the point being we can't compete with the United States on a global level. We're not going to put pressure on San Francisco or 
we're not going to put pressure on American allies in Europe or the Middle East. But what we can do is within our sphere of influence, within the South China Sea, within the East China Sea, we can make it very, very expensive for the United States to operate militarily here if we choose to do so. And that includes having the kinds of weaponry that can take out American um, battle groups that can threaten American aircraft carriers, which are extremely expensive and rare. And so if they could relatively cheaply cripple very, very expensive American equipment, which right now it seems like they can, that makes a, a prospective military conflict on China's borders really unappetizing. The United States has responded to that by developing allies, by coordinating with India and Australia and Japan, and really trying to leverage some of our advantages, which include our alliances, which we have in great variety, and China really doesn't, but also to try to negate some of these anti-access area denial strategies. Why this is different is, generally speaking, hypersonic weapons are not a um, A2AD kind of kinds of weapons. These are designed for global deterrence. Uh, so another way of putting that more pointedly is this is not the kind of weapon that China would use to take Taiwan back by force. This right. is the kind of weapon China would threaten the mainland of the United States with if the United States tried to stop them from taking right. back Taiwan by right. force. Right. right. That's a good distinction. And of course, that is re relevant once again, because the China-Taiwan issue has come back to the forefront. So, so my question is, I mean, so the U.S. has been trying to develop its own hypersonic technology. Uh, yes. For decades, actually, with Nick's success, and they've they've you know explored some of the the different options for for hypersonic technology. Um, China's particular technology, just one type of hypersonic technology that mm -hmm. you could use to deliver. Yeah, for example, uh, the Russians way. have been experimenting with um, sea launched, essentially hypersonic torpedoes, which sounds like a James Bond thing, but really what it means is subs are really hard to track they're really hard they're especially hard for missile defense systems so a russian sub could surface launch a hypersonic uh, torpedo or missile at that point right. and um and be able to obviate localized defensive missile systems right so so my you know question i guess chris is maybe twofold do you think um I mean, do you think in some sense we're in kind of an arms race, um, if we want to use that term, with China to develop competing capacities that can sort of, that can address the growing capacities of other side? So there's this, this incentive for each side to basically continually build up, develop its capacities quantitatively and qualitatively. So that's the first sort of big picture question. The second question is, what is the U.S. sort of, how is it sort of currently responding to the Chinese? And mm -hmm. what do you make of of things that we've heard from the Biden administration, for example, in the press conference back last Friday, Press Secretary Jen Psaki talked about how um, we actually welcome sort of stiff competition with the Chinese, um, which seems exactly wrong-headed. You don't want competition. You want to blow the competition out of the water, right? You want to you want to have vastly superior capabilities to your enemy, not hope that they're going to be competitive with you, right? On that, so we sort of explain, you know, just generally what the situation is, and then what we know about how the Biden administration is responding. Matt, you're telling me you're not one of those people who goes. Oh, go ahead, Andy. I was just gonna say that does feel like an argument that comes from weakness, right? Like you say that you want good competition when, in fact, you have no choice. Like they are competing; they're doing a good job. Like we're glad our opponent is strong. It's going to ultimately make us stronger. But like, I mean, would we love to be crushing them sixty to nothing on the football field? Yes, we would, but we can't. So. We're going to revel in. But it's just such a lame thing to telegraph, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yes, go ahead. You have something. I would. I guess I would be less interested in reading into Jen Psaki's statement. About oh, I, I totally agree. But she was literally reading off notes and referencing yeah. what the SACDEF was sort of saying, right? So like, so yeah. what is the Biden administration's view of this? Because we're getting mixed signals from the Biden administration yeah. on a variety of foreign policy. Well, well, I'll talk about what the Biden administration is doing, but I want to talk more technically about whether or not we're in an arms race. I would definitely suggest that we are in strategic competition with the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, We have been talking well, since the Trump administration, uh, well, no, actually, since the perspective, since the early part of the Obama administration about pivoting towards Asia. Now, a couple of those pivots were half-hearted attempts. The uh, attempt under the Obama administration with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, frankly, just didn't happen because the, the Obama administration kept getting pulled back to the Middle East, kept getting pulled back to Iraq and Afghanistan. But both Republicans and Democrats have been interested in reallocating American strategic assets and strategic force and, and strategic attention towards towards China and away from the Middle East. And there's all kinds of good strategic reasons for doing that, not, not to mention the fact that America is increasingly oil independent from the Middle East. But the ability of the country, well, let me, let me say it this way. The United States is probably not in an arms race with China for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, our military spending hasn't really responded uh, to Chinese military buildup. We, military spending has not dramatically increased. In fact, military spending has declined somewhat under the Trump administration. And at least the current, the first Biden budget also sort of institutionalized some of those declines. Now, Congress regularly appropriates more money to the military than the president asks for. And that happened in this last term as well. So there, it's, it's called topping up. And, and really, Congress is putting more money behind the military. And that makes good domestic politics. You want to fund those soldiers and those bases and those industries that are in your district. And that's why that happens. But we're not really responding to the Chinese per se, even Mm -hmm. though there are military thinkers who would very much like us to do so. Where it's happening is not really in hypersonic technology, where it really needs to happen is in naval deployments. And so there are um, military experts who are suggesting that although the United States still has naval superiority and could essentially cripple the Chinese economy by cutting off like the Straits of Malacca, for example, the Chinese technically have more naval vessels than Americans do. Now, our vessels are higher tech, they're more capacious, they're faster, they have more weapons on them, but they do have more. And that might be where we need to respond. But we're not even responding in that way yet. So I don't think we're in an arms race. But I think it is a strategic competition. And where it's playing out most dramatically are the ways that are less sexy. So hypersonic missiles sound terrifying. But what we really need to be paying attention to is alliance force structure, which is boring. But coordinating with the Australians and the Indians and the, and the Japanese on how we coordinate our forces probably matters a whole lot more. And likewise, I think cyber warfare matters a whole lot more. And that's something that we've already seen in our electoral systems, which can be incredibly debilitating if we're if we're unprepared for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could we should probably do a whole podcast on just cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. but I'll, I'll say one more thing, and I'll, uh, we can we can wrap with this. I think an important question that we have not answered yet, but political scientists are working on, is 
what is China's behavior in relation to not just its current level of power, but its prospective future level of power? There has been the dominant conventional wisdom over the course of the last 20 years is that China is growing dramatically in power and has no real uh, end in sight to that growth of power and will eventually surpass the United States. And this is hegemonic transition that the position the United States occupied through the latter half of the 20th century. We will cede at some point to China and the next century will be a Chinese century. Increasingly, though, mostly amongst American scholars, but but increasingly, we're starting to hear takes and saying, well, are we so sure about that? The Chinese economy is slowing down dramatically. China has a looming demographic demographic crisis, meaning there's going to be a lot of people moving out of the workforce with a smaller population to support them. They have not liberalized their political system to meaningfully make uh, policy changes. Uh China has heavily urbanized, but at great cost to their environmental goods, at great uh, cost to their middle class, who at some point wants to mobilize their economic attainment into real valuable goods. And and they're not well suited to surpass the United States. In fact, people are trying to say perhaps they won't surpass the United States in any meaningful way over the course of the next several decades. And that raises a question. Does China behave differently if they realize they're at peak power yep, as opposed exactly to a say. future peak yep. prospectively? Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and some of those scholars um, have been saying that, you know, if China does think it's at its peak or approaching its peak and it really wants to, you know, take back Taiwan. Right. And they know, you know, the window of opportunity is better, you know, within the next five to 15 yep. years as opposed to the next 20 to 30 um, would they, you know, maybe the incentive is they, they take it sooner rather than later, right? Um, because um, they can't predict exactly what's going to happen as far out and things don't look for as good for them as far out. Which brings so. us ultimately back to Andy's question, which is how committed is the Biden administration to right. defending Taiwan? Mm-hmm. And without being able to be inside the room, I've <laughs> seen no signaling from the part of the United States of any change in our strategic willingness to defend Taiwan. So the same question that we exist today has existed as far back as the Reagan administration. Uh, Will we use military force? Will we engage in a war with China to keep, to maintain the integrity of Taiwan right now? The United States has military trainers on the ground in Taiwan, teaching the Taiwanese military um, techniques for responding to a modern rapid uh, amphibious assault on the part of the Chinese military. And there was a recent article came out today about how uh, training in the Taiwanese military is, is absolutely terrible. Morale is in the tank um, and it's not a good situation there. So, right. so yeah. And, and this but matters think, for... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to say, and and, you know, China knows that if it's going to try to take Taiwan, it's going to have to deal with the United States military first, right? Because the U.S. military will have some presence in Taiwan. And so what China will want to do is want to knock out the Thai, you know, knock out the strong person first so that they can seize the weaker, right? It's a very old, old yep. politi- you know, military tactic, right? Yep. And so they know they will have to engage the United States. To me, more of the question, maybe you can correct this, Chris, is how successful they would be at the initial sort of strike against U.S. forces. And if the United States would be able to anticipate that 
and sort of deal with it effectively. And then let's just say in the situation they were able to cripple what you know the fifth fleet or whatever fleet is there like and they're able to sort of begin invading taiwan would the u.s commit additional forces at that point have the political will to try to roll back the chinese advance mm -hmm. i think if the chinese do seek to take taiwan by force they have to commit to the idea that they'll be bringing with them a global economic recession right because the biggest tool the United States has to leverage against China is not, I, I sincerely doubt we're going to you know, be launching major bombing campaigns against Chinese cities. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to cut off Chinese trade in response and cripple them economically. And they'll pay enormous economic costs for a substantial period of time. If they take Taiwan by force, I don't think we can stop them from taking Taiwan by force. We can make it costly. But I don't think we can actually stop them. But they know they'll incur, incur enormous costs afterwards. And yeah. I think world world positions would essentially collaborate with the United States at that point if China was perceived as the clear aggressor. Here's one signal to pay attention to as we prepare to wrap up for today. One of uh, Taiwan's biggest industries that the United States is incredibly reliant upon is a significant portion of, a, of semiconductors produced in the, for, the, for American consumption are produced in Taiwan. That's yeah. been just fine so far. Taiwan is a highly developed, highly technical, industrialized democracy, and we're happy to buy semiconductors from them. But the Biden administration has indicated a willingness to begin developing more indigenous American semiconductor plants. And if the United States starts to create semiconductor plants here in Montana or Arkansas or wherever, that means that we can be more willing to economically sacrifice the output that Taiwan is producing. And that would signal to Taiwan and also to China that Taiwan is less in our strategic core interests. Yeah. My, my other question, and I know we got to wrap, Chris, is... As I, I've heard expressed before, and again, this is outside my wheelhouse, but I mean, let's just say China is able to deliver a, a knockout punch um, and successfully seize Taiwan. Yeah, there's a lot of casualties. Will there be political will in the United States? And they say, look, and now we seize Taiwan and now we're open for business, right? Um, all the assets that we seize, like we, you know, that that's all we want. Um, we've gotten what we want. And and we're we're we would like to restore sort of normalcy, right? We have just taken back, you know, a part of our country that is that has always been a part, right? And that's the language they've been used, right? So so you know, there you know, world history is full of examples of of appeasing aggressors, right? World War II, mm -hmm. right? What's yep. to say the United States and other countries are like, yeah, we could we could try to cripple chi the Chinese economy, but in doing so, we're going to cripple our own economies, right? Is there really going to be a will to punish China economically? Is economic deterrence really going to be effective? Great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I'll only <laughs> add as of right now, uh, a, a aggressive stance towards China is one of the most bipartisan issues in Congress and in True. electoral politics. Americans support a aggressive stance towards China and the Republican and Democratic parties are happy to line up behind them as well. So if that were to happen in the near term, I think the answer is there is political will. But as soon as it starts to actually cost Americans something, right. the question is which party balks first? And you could imagine the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party or the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party saying, you know what, this is actually about American values and all the Chinese people are together, all the Chinese people are happy. Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, we gotta go, guys. Thanks. I feel. I. I just. I feel good. Doesn't this feel good to talk about international politics? Yeah. It's good, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. For for those of you who can't see uh, this, you know, Zoom meeting, Chris is all but bouncing in his chair. So, so you've been, been listening. Great. You've been listening to uh, Election Shock Therapy IR Edition. We'll be back in your feed next week with another brief podcast. Thanks for listening to us. Please check out the channel. There's great stuff from Video Store um, to um, Tweet Victory and lots of other things coming down the pipe. Thanks for listening to us. You can always reach out to our podcast at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And until you hear from us again, go Royals. Go Royals.